It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, February 13th, 2022. I'm Jared Halper. What can the Fed do to start bringing down inflationary price hikes? And the fear is... Um, that it will significantly slow down the economy if the Fed moves too aggressively, throw us back into a recession. And redistricting maps are taking shape. Democrats were able to pass their own gerrymander of New York, and so that has also been really helpful to them. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Americans are paying more for a lot of things. The Labor Department released the latest inflation numbers this week, amounting to 7.5 percent over the past 12 months. That is the fastest pace since 1982, 40 years. And it isn't just vehicles which are more expensive and driving up inflation. Gas is up about 40 percent. Groceries are up double digits. So is clothing and furniture. Inflation has been persistent for months, and the Federal Reserve has moved away from earlier beliefs that inflation would be transitory or temporary. The inflation concerns come as President Biden is looking to reshape the central bank's governing board, with nominees waiting approval in the Senate. Edward Lawrence covers the White House for the Fox Business Network and has been closely following the Fed's response to inflation and the nominees who could soon set that course. It is a 40-year high on inflation. February of 1982 was the last time uh, it was it was about this high. Uh, so you're looking at really an accelerating inflation because 7.5% is greater than the expectations, 0.6% month over month. Now, the White House has been pointing an in inflation that, oh, well, the month over month data is going down. That's not the case in this report. The 6.6% month over month is exactly the same as last year, so it's now leveling off. Now, as it relates to the Federal Reserve, so there's a number of different five, actually, uh, nominations for the Federal Reserve. You've got the Fed Chairman, Jerome Powell. You've got uh, Leo Brainerd, a board of uh, governor. They're currently on the board. Those two will probably be, uh, will sail through their confirmation process. Then you have three new picks from the Biden administration. We're talking about Lisa Cook, Philip Jefferson, and Sarah Bloom Raskin. Um, All of them have the qualifications to be on the the board of governors, but Republicans are very concerned about two, uh, at least two of these picks, not quite as concerned about Philip Jefferson. Um, you know, where would you like to start first? You want to start with Lisa Cook or Sarah Bloom Raskin? <laughs> well, let's start. You got let's a lot start. to say on both. Well, I guess we can start with Lisa Bloom Raskin. She is, uh, for folks who, co- who know Washington, uh, that Raskin would be a familiar last name. She is married, right, to the uh, congressman from Maryland who has uh, spearheaded a lot of the, uh, the January 6th investigations. Right. And not only that, he was a, an impeachment manager yeah. uh, against uh, former President Donald Trump. So, yeah, Sarah Bloom Raskin. So she the, the, the problem that they have with her pick is, one, she has advocated for regulation to starve industries, certain industries of financing. For example, the energy industry, fossil fuels. Um, she questioned openly uh, in in op eds that she wrote why the Federal Reserve would include a allowing oil and gas companies to help 
save themselves during the pandemic when ultimately they want oil and gas companies to to go away and you want to shift away from fossil fuels. That's the first thing. The second thing which came out really in earnest in the confirmation hearing was uh, this reserve trust company. So Sarah Bloom Raskin was uh, a board of governor uh, on the Federal Reserve. Then she went to the Treasury Department. After that, she went to a company called Reserve Trust. And that company offers payment processing and other business pay- other business to business payments. So they got what's called a critical master account from the Federal Reserve. That's vital because it doesn't really need banks to transfer money quickly from one to another. So for a company to get that, that does business to business payments, it's critical. It could really boost their bottom line on this. So she joined the company and Senator Cynthia Lummis from uh, Wyoming in the nomination hearing laid out how she found, her staff found that Raskin made calls with officials at the Kansas City Federal Reserve back in 2018. So the decision then was made to give this small company, uh, which was the first fintech company of its kind to get a master account. uh, And she got that, they got that account. Now in exchange, we have now come to find out years later that Raskin got stock from the company, which was sold for about $1.5 million, but not disclosed. The sale was actually in 2021, but it was not disclosed until a few weeks ago when they filed an update to their financial transactions um, and when her husband, Representative Jamie Raskin, filed that amendment. So that's what sort of this all sort of unraveled. And the Federal Reserve, had, or the, the um, Senate, the Republicans on the Senate Banking Committee have a real problem with this sort of conflict of interest that it, it appears with this one pick. She has been a, a governor on the board but previously, right? She is not new to, to this world of financial regulation. But it's really what happened after she was a board yeah. of governor. You know, she was board of governor. Then she went to the Treasury Department. Then she got, you know, went in with this company, Reserve Trust. Um, when she was on the board of governors last time, her husband was only a state representative. He didn't have a national profile. Um, now he's he's raised his profile. So there's other questions there as to whether she can be truly independent. Um, you know, Lisa Cook, the other one could set a record, could be trend, uh, 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 trend setting, break a ceiling. She could be the first black woman ever to serve on the board of the of governors for the Federal Reserve. And that's an important thing. And Republicans note that she has all the credentials for it. The concern for Republicans and she likely will pass through, eke through the Senate. Sarah Bloom Raskin may not make it through because of her comments about the coal industry. And you've got, um, you know, Senator Joe Manchin uh, is a big coal state. So that, that's going to be an issue to see exactly which way that falls. Lisa Cook will probably eke through. But the concern from Republicans, Senator Pat Toomey is concerned concerned that she will push for too much racial justice policies in the Federal Reserve, sort of go outside the mandate of just price stability and um, keeping inflation in check, uh, as well as full employment. Uh, She's been very vocal about how black unemployment rate lags behind other racial, racial groups, which it does. It lags behind. The concern is that she will keep those rates, the the interest rates, artificially low, allowing the economy to run much hotter than it needs to be, even much hotter now, which will allow inflation to go even more just to get that one minority group uh, rate down or for the unemployment rate. But part of what the, the president is aiming to do here is to bring in new backgrounds, diversify the Federal Reserve. Yes. Right. And that's something that. Um, you know, Democrats have said it is long overdue. I think some Republicans have conceded it is long overdue. 
Absolutely. And Republicans have, have conceded that, too. Lisa Cook is a minority. Philip Jefferson is a minority. And Sarah Bloom Raskin is a woman for these picks. Um, yeah, no, both Republicans and Democrats believe there needs to be more diversity. Because with diversity, you get a diverse uh, group of, uh, of thinking when it relates to the yeah. economy. The issue is when you're talking about the Federal Reserve, they have to rely on data as opposed to principles. Um, and that's one of the well, things that, that the distinction that the Republicans are concerned about, that some of these picks, Sarah Bloom Raskin in particular, Lisa Cook in particular, will rely on principles and how they believe certain industries should not be viable or they believe that certain minority groups need to be uh, helped over others, as opposed to just looking at a broad 10,000 foot view of we need to have inflation in check and maximum employment. Over. Let me follow up on that. Do these nominees and the renomination of the chairman, Jay Powell, signal what the Biden administration would prefer the independent Federal Reserve to do uh, to respond to inflation? In other words, are we getting a sense of, you know, right. we'd really like X, Y and Z policy over ABC policy to, to handle inflation? Well, covering the Federal Reserve over the past five years, I can tell you that the Fed is behind the curve in terms of dealing with inflation. And part of that could be that the president held up whether he was going to renominate Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell for a, another term. And in turn, uh, if you look outside now, the, the, the Chairman Powell does, says this is not true. However, if you look at it, it they were the Federal Reserve held rates lower longer and left the accommodation in longer than really they should have. The, the Cleveland Federal Reserve has studies out saying the, the federal funds rate, the interest rate should be uh, like 2.75% right now. But the Fed chairman was trying to get renominated. You know, the president it was sort of a game of chicken. The president, how long can you wait to raise rates and, and turn and be more hawkish? You know, after the renomination, you, you saw an immediate pivot by the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell saying, hey, we need to get into uh, inflation under control. We need to move faster. We need to contract the balance sheet. So, you know, that plays into it. So there you have accommodation and sort of manipulation um, in, within the Federal Reserve to keep the rates lower. Then you've got some new ideology coming in. Um, Leo Brainerd also has some concerns from Republicans about her ideals uh, seeping into uh, this clean energy, uh, shift to clean energy away from fossil fuels. And they're very worried the Federal Reserve will use regulations to make sure banks don't lend to those oil industries. Now, Again, in the confirmation hearings, all of them across the board saying that's not going to happen. They're going to stay independent. But, you know, you look at this and Republicans are wondering, hey, maybe this is the shift. You know, you've got five now new nominees. Now, the Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell has been uh, been independent. I mean, you see him on both sides of the aisle. They both support him. But you've got four new picks that sort of lean left. Let me ask, because you, you kind of talk about the policies here, and, and I'm interested in how the Fed can uh, try and, and respond to, to these different economic situations, right? So you have inflation on the right. one hand, and it sounds like one way that, that the Fed tries to combat that is they raise some of these interest rates, right? But that's, is the preferred, the, that's the preferred method, yes. Is the concern that that makes it harder for, 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 for entrepreneurs to, to get capital? It, it does. And, and the concern is it will slow. What it does is it slows down the economy. And if you go back to the, the early 80s when Paul Volcker became Fed chairman, you know, we had runaway inf 
people don't remember this. You don't remember this. I, <laughs> I don't remember this. But you, you forget, we had runaway inflation uh, in the late 70s going into the early 80s. And Paul Volcker came in and he raised the federal funds rate significantly. Uh, and it, it sent interest rates up to 17, 20 percent. Um, and that slowed the demand and got the inflation back into check. It led the country into a recession, but it did the trick. That, this is fast forward to today. This is what people are worried about. You know, if the Federal Reserve raises and, and now there's an index that looks at percentages of, oh, we believe this is how high this is how high the Fed will go uh, this fast. In this March meeting, the index has raised to 90 percent chance that there's a 50 basis point jump. Now, the Fed has been going 25 just 0.25% or 25 basis points up and down. A 50 would be a greater jump. It's more of a shock to the system. And when you raise interest rates, you make money more expensive. Anyone who has a car loan, uh, who is trying to get a car loan, that car loan would be more expensive. Anyone who has a mortgage, that mortgage trying to get a new one would be more expensive. If you have an adjustable mortgage or an arm or a second mortgage that is adjustable, that adjustable rate is going to go up uh, with this. And the fear is, Um, that it will significantly slow down the economy if the Fed moves too aggressively, throw us back into a recession. So, I mean, it sounds to me like what is the Fed supposed to do, right? Because if they keep the interest rates low, as the the, the policy has been, clearly you see these inflationary uh, uh, measures uh, happen. But but the response is going to slow down the economy. That, that, That seems like... I don't know, Edward. What do you do? (laughs) Well, right. But inflation is a beast that they have to get under control. And everybody acknowledges that Um, it's something that America that's not sustainable for those who are are on limited paychecks, for those who have uh, on retirement only. Um, Inflation has to be under control. And and that's sort of the trade off that you make. But you try and make that the the threading the needle is trying to make that trade off without too much pain to the consumer. Um, and that's what the Federal Reserve has to do, which is why critics are, are very upset that the Federal Reserve waited so long in order to make these moves uh, and remove the accommodation. I mean, think about it right now. Today, the Federal Reserve is still adding accommodation to to the meaning they're pumping in money to the system, inflating it. That hasn't stopped yet and won't stop for another month or so. So that, that, that people, economists are scratching their head going, why are we still accommodating uh, this economy when it is growing like crazy? Mm-hmm. Were those steps viewed as necessary during the pandemic, sort of when, when businesses were yes. shut down, when, when people were unable to go to work? Is that why those accommodations yes. were put into place? That's exactly why they were okay. put into place. And they were put into place during the pandemic uh, in order to make sure that markets functioned and didn't collapse. And so and now the question needed. is, how quickly do you get out of that pandemic footing to deal with what is happening with inflation? Exactly. And, and some economists believe that they've, got, they've waited too long to get out of it. Now they have to move faster. And by moving faster, you shock the system. I was gonna, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it full circle just by asking, have, uh, have, have the nominees for the Federal Reserve been supportive of those rate raises? I assume they've been asked about it. Yes, they have been asked about it. And on the whole, Philip Jefferson supports going up. You know, Lisa Cook hedged her bets a little bit in her nomination hearing, saying, yes, she does believe inflation needs to get under control, but didn't quite say how fast or how high uh, the interest rates needs to go, which leads the Republicans, again, feeds into their their concerns that she's going to wait too long even though it is too long to raise interest rates. 
Um, you know, and the whole re let's take a step back. The whole reason you raise interest rates uh, is because you want to get to a level. So if there is a recession, then the Federal Reserve can just move the interest rates down by one percentage point. And then that can eat. Everybody feels better. More money's in the system. And that will then bring us out of the recession much quicker. If they are not at, say, 4%, and that's been the target rate, sort of 4% to be able to deal with ups and downs in the economy. If they're not at 4% and we have a recession, then they've got to do all this other stuff they're doing, quantitative easing, these other tricks, so to speak, of the, the economy in order to prop it up. And that's much more difficult to manage than it is just to manage by using interest rates. Things are going to cost it more is. on one end or the other. Exactly. It's yeah. true. All right, Edward, on that uplifting note, I will let you go. Have a great weekend. <laughs> From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. The battle lines are almost set. Well, not battle lines so much as legislative and congressional district lines. We've spent a lot of time on the redistricting process the last several months, and we'll spend a few more minutes on it as maps now become more clear and courts are signing off and how legislators and redistricting commissions are dividing up states. The Cook Political Report has been tracking very closely redistricting and which seats may be more or less advantageous for Republican and Democratic candidates. This week, that publication says Democrats now have the lead on that scorecard. That would signal a flip as Republicans for decades held the upper hand on redistricting advantages. Kyle Connick has written about that in his book, The Long Red Thread, released last year. Kyle is also the managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics and a frequent guest on this podcast to break down election trends. I don't know if I would go as far as to say it would be a net gain for Democrats. And again, this is still a story that's being written, but um, there have been some important developments recently that at the very least, I think, is 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 making redistricting look like something of a wash right now. Um, and that is that, you know, the, the, the Republicans have tried to gerrymander Ohio and North Carolina to their benefit and courts in those states have thrown out those maps. And so those aren't going to be as good, good a mass Republicans as they hoped. Meanwhile, Democrats were able to pass their own gerrymander of New York. And so that has also been really helpful to them. Now, it's also possible state courts may intervene against that map at some point, although I don't necessarily know if we should expect that necessarily. But those three big states and those recent developments. I think have sort of uh, kind of changed the overall kind of picture about redistricting. Um, and but the thing is, though, is that, you know, just, you know, it, it may be that uh, that Democrats come out of this process with a, with a better map, better overall map for themselves than certainly the one that they had 10 years ago when Republicans had more control than they have now. But the, the for, for the picture of 2022, the, the environment matters more than the map. And the environment is still, I think, really pretty good for Republicans. And so I don't think any of what's been going on in redistricting is necessarily going to, you know, would preclude the Republicans from from winning the House. It just so, may I mean, mean that Democrats may have an easier time winning it back if, in fact, they do lose it this time. What you're saying is, is you know, the, the difference is maybe a matter of seats, probably not enough, I guess, to if you're looking at this in sort of a wave type election. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, in other words, just because you get some favorable maps in a couple of states. 
Yeah, look, there there are enough marginal seats that Republicans can definitely get the five net seat gain that they need to win the House. What I think is going to help determine how big of a gain the Republicans actually end up making, if in fact they make a gain, um, is there are going to be a lot of seats that are like where Biden did better than his four and a half point margin nationally, but not like overwhelmingly better. So seats where Biden maybe got in the mid to high single digits and that those sorts of seats are really going to determine like how big of a wave it might be. Um, but again, there are enough marginal districts in a lot of these states that um, that there are certainly you know, there are many pathways for Republicans to 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 net, to net get the kind of small net gain that they need. I know that you, you talked about New York and Ohio, where, where states have sort of let these maps stand or not stand. I mean, Republicans got a, a bounce, it looks like, maybe in this Alabama map. Yeah, look, and it, it, that's a kind of a complicated story. So um, the, the Alabama map that just that, that is now going to be in place for 2022, mm -hmm. it's very similar to the one that was in place um, last decade. You know, it's a 6-1 Republican map. Alabama is, of course, a very Republican state. But the one Democratic district is uh, a district that is uh, heavily Democratic and also uh, a majority Black. And uh, those kinds of seats are protected under the Voting Rights Act. And, and so um, what a, a lower court actually ordered was that because Alabama's population is, um, you know, is, 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 is uh, roughly 25 percent black and you could easily draw a district that would allow black voters to elect a person of their choice, that this court said, hey, Alabama, you need to create essentially a second black majority or black influence district, and that district probably would be Democratic. However, the U.S. Supreme Court said, hey, we're going to hold off on making a decision here. This map can be in place for 2022. And it's possible that given how conservative this court has been on the Voting Rights Act and other things, you know, it's possible that they'll rule in such a way that not only does a state like Alabama not have to create a second majority black seat, it might not necessarily have to create any majority black seats at all. But that's that's a story for future mm -hmm. um, redistricting cycles, not for this one. So I asked that question because obviously, to, to your point, the Supreme Court sort of weighed in, at least in the sense that they said, hold on, let's keep things in place and, and let this process play out. But the Supreme Court in, in recent years has said, Gerrymandering, if it is based on race, is not okay. But if this is gerrymandering and just sort of one party reaping the benefits of being in the majority, that's okay. Correct. Unless Congress says it's not. Does you know? I know Republicans have been very. Uh, the, 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 you've heard complaints from Republicans, especially about this New York map. I think you hear them about the Maryland map as well, um, and so. Do you think the outcome of all of this, the outgrowth of all of this, is that conversation picking up some traction on Capitol Hill? You know, I I do think that that um, that in some ways, you know, gerrymandering reform is sort of an idea whose time has come, and I think we've seen that time and again at the state statewide level. That when voters sometimes get a chance to weigh in on these things, they're sometimes they're often supportive of efforts to to uh, make you know, to, to sort of reform the redistricting process. We've seen states like Virginia, Ohio, and Michigan in recent years, voters supported those kinds of efforts. Um, and then those, you know, those efforts aren't always successful, but but they do indicate public interest, I think, in um, do, doing something about redistricting. You know, the Democrats have, um, who've been sort of on the wrong side of redistricting the past couple cycles, probably less so this time when it's all said and done than in, in, in the past couple cycles. But um, 
they have proposed some sort of national standards for redistricting, but they've done so as part of a much bigger elections right. package that has a lot right. of stuff in it that um, Republicans just don't want to deal with. And I don't even know if Republicans really want a national solution to gerrymandering or national standards. Republicans sometimes feel like when there's some sort of independent process that they end up on the short end of the stick. And I would I don't I personally don't really agree with that. I think that that, you know, Whenever a map is created, there are going to be winners and losers. I feel like in if you look at some of the commissions this cycle, Republicans have benefited in some places, the Democrats have benefited in some places. Nothing seems particularly egregious to me. Um, so, you know, I think that you, you could argue that that the Democrats redistricting proposal is not actually that serious because it's packaged together with a bunch of other stuff, including like campaign finance mm -hmm. and other things and voting rules that, you know, Republicans just don't really believe in and don't want to do yeah, early um, voting mail in balloting. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, could there could there be a serious effort, particularly if you if you structured it in a way in which it didn't go into effect until the next census? So in 2030 and that you did create some sort of standards to, um, you know, to deal with some of the most egregious gerrymanders like, I, you know, I would consider um, you know, New York and Maryland are that way on the Democratic side, yeah. you know, Texas, the, you know, the maps that, nor that the North Carolina Republicans proposed that got shot down in state court. Um, you know, what just happened in Tennessee, where, um, you know, the Republicans, uh, you know, just carved up the one of the one of the two Democratic districts. You know, you could there, there are everybody's got grievances in this process and you could come up with some way to sort of standardize the process and also put some guardrails in place in which some of the worst excesses of gerrymandering could be limited. And I think that, that you know, to me, that would be a fair system than one in which. Essentially, the majority party can just lord over the minority party in a given let, state. But let me ask this, um, because you mentioned that, that some states have moved away from the legislatures uh, handling this and in favor of some sort of like independent or bipartisan commission. Uh, are, are those maps that are created from these commissions um, less likely to face court scrutiny than the, the legislature drawn maps? Um, I, you know, again, it sort of depends on the states because because, of course, the, you know, the federal or the, the federal courts, they don't uh, they yeah. don't deal with partisan usually state gerrymandering. courts that are looking at it. Right. But, but yeah. And so and so certain states have standards and others don't. So, you know, one interesting test case here is that when voters approved what appeared to be like an independent commission in New York, um, that now what happened is that commission was essentially the, the Democrats in the state legislature had the power to essentially not have to worry about the commission. And so they, they exercise their power. But the, the when when voters created that commission several cycles ago, they put some language in the state constitution, essentially uh, um, putting some guidelines in the process saying that, it, you know, the map shouldn't benefit one party over the other. Um, the map should be compact, et cetera. And, you know, if you're a Republican, you could look at it and say, wait a second, what the Democrats did here doesn't comport with what's in the constitution now. And so there's going to, there, there will be some court action on that. And you have, but you, you also have a, a, the, the highest court in New York state is it's seven Oh democratic appointees. Um, so will they actually go along with that? You know, will they kick it into the next cycle? Um, you know, so there's there's still a lot up in the air. Even maps that we describe now as being final aren't always final. And it's pretty common throughout the decade that there are maps that um, even though, you know, every state redraws 
you know, after the census and, and you know, have new maps in place for, you know, the year ending in two for the rest of the decade, um, often there'll be, you know, there'll be a, a state or two that, you know, changes its maps throughout the decade. So, um, you know, the, the, whatever, you know, once, once the final state has done their maps, this cycle don't necessarily assume that all of them are going to be in place for the rest of the decade. That's the frustration for some members, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about members of Congress that have to know where, where they're running. You're talking about people in the state house needing to know where they're running. That's right. And, and, you know, one other source of frustration for the members and, you know, for everyone involved in redistricting is that, you know, the census was late right. this time. And so we'd be further along in the process if, if the census would had, had provided the numbers that were required for doing redistricting, you know, in the spring of last year, as opposed to uh, in, in the kind of later part of the, the, uh, the summer. That's right. The census, as I recall, had coronavirus related delays. Yeah. And, and there were some, uh, you know, I, some challenges to the questions that were asked. Right. That's right. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, the Trump administration, the Biden administration had different ideas about that. And, you know, yeah. so there were there were some a, a lot of complications. The bottom line is it was a delayed process. But as you look at the maps now, uh, the bottom line is, you know, it, it may help Democrats in, in some seats, but we're not looking at it's something where this race for control of the House is decided on you know the, these handful of maps that that may be under some some new scrutiny. Yeah, let's put it this way: if the environment, the, the political environment in November is such that um, Republicans would normally be favored to win the House, you know, if the if Biden's approval was was as low as it is now, mm-hmm. if they were leading on the House generic ballot polling, et cetera, they had good candidates, et cetera, the maps aren't going to prevent them from winning the House majority. And in fact, they probably would win when going away in the House majority. Um, it's just that um, the the map the maps, you know, particularly the last decade, definitely had a Republican bias overall nationally. And by the end of this process, they might not have much Republican bias. But even then, you could look at the maps as being sort of net neutral. Um, and Republicans would, would certainly, and Democrats would have the, the ability to win the House in, you know, in, in years in which they had the wind at their back. Well, I appreciate you uh, explaining all of this. Uh, you know, th- th- how these maps are drawn are, are very important. They don't always get a lot of attention, but to your point, courts are paying attention to them, legislatures are paying attention to them, and certainly uh, the congressional campaign committees for both the Republicans and Democrats are going to pay an awful a lot of attention. It's important, I think, for voters to, to understand the geography in which they're placed as well in the context of an election. So, Kyle, I appreciate you uh, helping explain it, uh, keeping your eye on it. It is uh, complicated, but you have been following it for a long time now, and I appreciate your insights. Thanks, Jared. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, President Biden is expected to start interviewing Supreme Court nominees. We will follow those developments, as well as the massive Russian military buildup now surrounding Ukraine. Is the window for diplomacy closing? Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For our team here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.